You're listening to Labor Wave Revolution Radio. Democratic socialists recognize capitalism as the oppressive power structure that it is in combination and support with other oppressive power structures such as white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism and cis-heteropatriarchy. And we recognize the need to dismantle capitalism as well as other power structures that interact with capitalism because none of these power structures exist in a vacuum. They all interact with and support and defend each other. On Labor Wave, we spoke with Paige Kreisman. Paige Kreisman is running for the Oregon House of Representatives in District 42 in the 2020 Democratic primary. She's endorsed by the Portland Democratic Socialists of America and Independence for Progressive Action, Our Revolution, Clackamas County. Paige is the electoral and legislative co-chair for Portland DSA and a board member for the Portland Tenants United. She's a disabled veteran and the first trans woman to run for the state legislature in Oregon. Paige is calling for an Oregon Green New Deal, campaign finance reform, housing justice, and to defend Oregon's public employees and unions. You can learn more about Paige 100% People Power Campaign at page2020.com. That's P-A-I-G-E 2020.com. In our discussion, we just spoke about how Paige intends to win this election as well as implement the policies that she is pushing forward that working class people need in Oregon. We also discussed the prospects of being an incorruptible politician amid so much corporate corruption. And we spoke briefly about Paige's impression on the national political scene in the United States and the prospects for democratic socialism today. As always, on Labor Wave, we listen to the music of John Dwyer and the OCs, as Mr. John Dwyer has given us permission to use his music without copyright. And we also encourage you to check out our new website. It's laborwaveradio.com. We have a blog that we keep up with regularly. We have many more episodes coming up and content that you can get updates on through our social media, our Facebook and Instagram. And you can also send us a message at laborwavenews at gmail.com. Why did you decide to join the race to win the seat in the Oregon House of Representatives for District 42? I'm the legislative chair for Portland DSA, um, and that basically means that I'm a lobbyist, but I don't have any money, so I'm not a very good lobbyist. I try, and in that effort, I was down in Salem pretty much every day last session, last legislative session. And um, I was incredibly disappointed in the string of half measures and compromises and defeats that our Democratic supermajority put out. So we had this massive victory this last election cycle where the Democrats won a supermajority in both chambers, the House and the Senate and the governorship. And what we got from it was, first off, a rent control bill. I'm doing air quotes here. A statewide rent control bill that caps rents at 7% plus CPI, which is 10.3% for this year. And I don't know anyone who can afford a 10.3% increase in rent. I know I can't. And then after that, we saw the Student Success Act, which was touted as a historic funding package for Oregon's public schools. It raised $2 billion per biennium in additional funding for schools, which is good. It's, that, it's great. But all that does is maintain the current funding levels for schools plus an additional $200 million, which isn't very significant. We needed $4 billion per biennium, double the amount that we got, in order to meet the quality education model put out by the state. That was about 10 years too late and $2 billion too short. Also in that same bill, it included an amendment to the bill that preempted 
commercial activities taxes, meaning in it, a statewide preemption that prevents cities and counties and districts from passing commercial activities taxes, like the Portland Clean Energy Fund, also known as a gross receipts tax or a value-added tax. So that would prevent other cities and counties from replicating Portland's Clean Energy Fund. That was something, the most, the most important thing about that amendment was it was something that Oregon Business and Industries, the largest lobbying group in the state, openly was negotiating for with um, Tina Kotek and Peter Courtney, the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. So OBI, Oregon Business and Industries, sent out an email to all their members saying that they won, they won seven concessions from the, the leadership, uh, Courtney and Kotek. And the biggest of those seven concessions were was the state preemption on commercial activities taxes. And that was an exchange for OBI not challenging the Student Success Act at the ballot box. So that was incredibly disappointing to me. I don't think we should be negotiating away our children's education to business interests. Another one I remember in this past year was also a cuts to the state PERS benefits program, which is the retirement fund for public workers. So yeah, that was the next that was the next failure of our supermajority and, and the biggest in my opinion. That was the most shameful was our Oregon supermajority, our Democratic supermajority that was elected in large part by teachers and nurses unions with widespread support from public workers, then turned around and voted to cut the the pensions of those same public workers. So the the purse issue was, in my opinion, a manufactured crisis that even if it needed to be addressed, could have been addressed in a myriad of other ways. My preferred answer to that would have been raising revenue. So raising revenue is more difficult than what they did. Um, It takes a um, three-fifths majority instead of a seven majority to raise revenue in the Oregon legislature. But we do have a supermajority in the legislature as Democrats. Um, I believe that Democrats should be the the party that fights for, for workers. If we can't be the party that fights for public workers and public employees and unions, then, then who is going to be fighting for, for nurses and teachers? Some of the most valuable public servants in our state are, are going to be left voiceless and, and, and won't have any representation in the state government because the Republicans certainly aren't going to be there to fight for these, these workers. And, you know, PERSE was funded at 111% in 2007 before the recession hit. And after the recession, the public employees investment fund lost about a lot of money because of the Wall Street eight recession. And that led to it being funded at 79% in 2019, which is why we supposedly needed to address this issue. It was Wall Street that lost that money. So Wall Street should be the ones that have to pay for it. Corporations should be the ones that have to pay for it. If we're going to charge anybody, it shouldn't be the workers. It shouldn't be the, the teachers and the nurses who are counting on that money to retire. It should be the corporations that lost it. But our state legislature is more, more interested in enriching the wealthiest and, and growing the, the portfolios of the 1% than they are for fighting for everyday working people. Um, and that shows in the amount of money they take from corporations. Oregon is the second most expensive state to run an election in per capita in the country, due in large part because we're one of only six states to allow unlimited corporate campaign contributions. And there's no sitting state legislator in the House or the Senate that doesn't take corporate money. Um, so we, we aim to change that. That's why we're running a 100% people-powered campaign with no corporate money accepted. I've been told that you can't win a campaign in Oregon this way. We're doing it. We're, we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to show this state that, that people power can win. Oregon is a democracy and that Oregon's a democracy that's going to work for everyday working people. So in your assessment, these concessions and half measures that the supermajority Democrat-controlled House made and legislature made, is that because they're corporate-backed, funded politicians? Or is it also because they're 
not capable of confronting and combating a very militant minority Republican political base that exists in Oregon. For listeners that maybe don't know, we had an experience in Oregon where the Republican minority simply fled the chambers of the House and refused to attend political sessions to basically bend the supermajority Democrats to their will. So like what, what really accounts for their decisions to make these concessions in your assessment? I think it's all of the above. So we know that corporate influence is a huge deciding factor in the state legislature because our legislators openly flaunt it. They're very happy to tell you straight up that they sat down at the table with OBI, they sat down at the table with Nike, they sat down at the table with the uh, lobbyist for Airbnb. Um, when I was working on Senate Bill 608, the rent control bill down there, I would go into a legislator's office and, and tell them why we need rent control and tell them about how there's I know this mayor from this city and this mayor from this city can pass rent control, so lift the state preemption. And they say, oh, okay, that's great, Paige. And as I walked out, the Airbnb lobbyist was walking right behind me. Now, that happened a couple of times. Like, I saw the guy there all the time. So we, we know that that's, that's clearly the case, but it's, it's much more than that, too. It's also the fact that the neoliberal ideology that's been so deeply ingrained in the corporate right wing of the, the Democratic Party, that they are um, much more comfortable working with and conceding to and, and and capitulating to Republicans than they are to the progressive left. So it's much easier and safer for them to simply concede defeat to Republicans when they walk out, when they walk out and, and deny quorum, than it is for them to take a hardline stance and uh, demand for true, true action that works for the people and not not for the corporate interests, not for Republicans. You know, we don't we don't need to be negotiating with Republicans. We have a supermajority. Republicans don't have any moral standing in this country to be worthy of negotiating with anymore. This is the party that's running concentration camps in our country right now. There's there's no reason that the Republican Party should be negotiated with, should be sitting down at the table with with Democrats. There's there's no reason that we should treat them as moral equals. The Republican Party needs to be defeated, not compromised with. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the prospects of what you would do as an elected official. But before that, let's talk a little bit about the incumbent that you're running against. So who is the incumbent and what is their political track record? The incumbent is Rob Nose. He's, um, he's been in office since 2014. And up until recently, he's been pretty good. He's been one of the more progressive members of the House. Up until very recently, um, he did some really great things. He was behind the non-binary driver's license gender markers um, in Oregon, which was first of its kind in the country. Really, really great historic achievement for Oregon there in expanding gender rights. But very recently, just this last session, he took a pretty hard turn to the right. He is um, has his roots in the union movement. He is a staffer for Oregon Nurses Association. Yet, because of that, he still voted to cut the public employee pensions. That was extremely shocking. We never thought in a million years that Rob Nos would vote to cut public employee pensions. This is his own. These are his own coworkers. He has to go into work the next day at ONA and look his coworkers in the eye after just voting to cut their pensions, taking thousands of dollars out of their pockets of some of the most undervalued civil servants in our state. So that was extremely shocking. But honestly, it shouldn't have been surprising because he was elected House Majority Whip. That was something that we kind of overlooked, that once someone gets sucked into the leadership of the neoliberal corporate establishment and the Democratic Party of Oregon, any morals that they had or, or pretended to have beforehand go right out the window. That's not surprising. We also shouldn't be surprised because he has a long history of taking money from the fossil fuel industry, from OBI affiliate members, Oregon Business and Industries, the largest lobbying group in the state, from Nike, from Comcast, from private health insurance companies. Um, he... 
uh, only only receives 37% of his contributions in his career from individuals. So this shouldn't have been surprising to us. It was. We learned about it. And when I say we, I mean DSA, the, me and my lobbying team at DSA. We learned about this two days before the vote. We learned that he was going to vote against PERS. We called his office. We sent him emails. We went down to Salem. We we tried to talk to him along with, of course, you know, Kotech and and Courtney, and they wouldn't they wouldn't meet with us, and they wouldn't meet with any of the unions. So there was a large coalition of unions opposing the bill. Oregon uh, Nurses Association, Rob's own union, was a part of, and Rob wouldn't meet with them either, and neither would the Democratic leadership, neither would with the Speaker or the Senate President. They wouldn't even sit down at the table with unions, but they were sitting down at the table with Republicans who had just come back from their walkout. They were sitting down at the table with Oregon Business and Industries and with Nike. So. It's extremely important that the Democrats wouldn't even talk to unions. I mean, it's pathetic. It's, it's just pathetic. So for all these reasons, these frustrating experiences trying to lobby with a progressive or a so-called progressive legislature, you've decided to run. And I want to talk a little bit more about specifically your platform and what you hope to accomplish. So first, you're running as an open democratic socialist. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what that means for you. And then I thought it would be good to just discuss some of the key platforms that you have listed on your website, such as the Green New Deal, campaign finance reform, defending unions and housing affordability. So yeah. I'll let you take those one at a time. So to start with, democratic socialism, that is in contradiction to supporting capitalism. And it's kind of just been granted as a default that you support capitalism in this country if you're an American. Democratic socialists recognize capitalism as the oppressive power structure that it is in combination and support with other oppressive power structures such as white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism and cis-heteropatriarchy. And we recognize the need to dismantle capitalism as well as other, other power structures that interact with capitalism because none of these power structures exist in a vacuum. They all interact with and support and defend each other. What that means is that our guiding principles our guiding values are that every single head deserves a roof over it in Oregon. Every single oh, student deserves a teacher. Every single family deserves a doctor. And we're not going to compromise on those basic core values. We believe that healthcare is a human right. We believe that housing is a human right. We believe that the right to an education for every child should be guaranteed. We don't believe in compromising with corporate profits to attain that. So that is the difference between us and the status quo of regular corporate liberals. We simply believe in a better world, a world that puts people and planet above profits. So those are the values that lay the foundation for the platform that I'm fighting for here in Oregon, which is an Oregon Green New Deal. That's different from cap and trade, from the cap and trade bill that failed in the Oregon legislature this last session. So the Oregon Green New Deal is kind of a buzzword at this point, but it is an actual piece of policy here in Oregon. It's, it's an actual piece of policy that's ready to go. It can be written into a bill from on day one as soon as I get elected. And that is due in large part, or actually due in pretty much all part, due to the work of the Oregon Just Transition Alliance, which is a coalition of climate activist groups and frontline community activist groups here in Oregon, most notably OPAL and 350PDX. And they, they wrote this policy that includes a moratorium on new fossil fuel infrastructure. So that would kill projects like Jordan Cove liquid natural gas pipeline and the Zenith Tar Sands terminal here in Portland. 
And then it includes regulation for clean, breathable air and clean water. It includes uh, regulation for sustainable forestry and agricultural practices, which was exempt wholesale from cap and trade. The forestry and logging and agricultural industry was just completely exempt from that bill and a clear handout to those lobbyists. And then it also includes uh, massive investments in uh, green infrastructure to transition us off of fossil fuel infrastructure to meet net zero carbon emissions by 2050 which is the absolute last possible uh, timeline that we can meet net zero carbon emissions. We really should be aiming for much sooner than that. That is cutting it absolutely as close as we can. And that means massive investments in fareless public transportation, high-speed rail across the state, green public transportation in every city, uh, redesigning our cities to, to not be so car-centric, but also feature um, you know, bus lanes and uh, bike infrastructure. And then it also includes a just transition. That's you know in the name of the coalition that, that wrote this policy, the Just Transition Alliance wrote this policy to include a just transition for workers and also those effect already affected by climate change. So a just transition means funding for jobs retraining and education for workers that are impacted by industry shifts because our enemies are not the workers that are working on the Jordan Cove natural gas pipeline. Our enemies are the corporations that are, that are destroying this planet. So we want to make sure we're not leaving those workers behind. So we want to include education funding so those workers can go and get retrained in, in, a, in a different field that they want to go and work in after the fossil fuel industry is destroyed. And we want to do that in a way that can also maybe guarantee their salary if they need to be unemployed for a certain period of time to go back to school if they want to. So we need to make sure we're not leaving those workers behind. And then we also need to start addressing communities that are already impacted by climate change. They're already being impacted right now. Frontline communities these are already being impacted at this moment by climate change. We need to be there to support that. So that's also part of the Green New Deal. It's a complete contradiction to cap and trade. It's not based around making it expensive to pollute. It's based on making it illegal to pollute. And then being there for the workers and the communities and the, the working class people that are impacted by climate change, not for corporations. So that's the, the chief difference between that and cap and trade. Campaign finance reform is our next big priority. That's an issue that affects everything else because we've seen the pattern of corporate contributions turn into to votes on the floor in the House and the Senate. And we need to cut that off. We need to end that, that practice. So Oregon is in the same category of states like Alabama and Virginia and Arkansas with allowing unlimited corporate contributions. We're one of only six states that allow unlimited corporate contributions. So we need to end that. We need to join the 22 other states that prohibit corporate campaign contributions entirely. Oregon needs to be a democracy that works for working class people and working class people exclusively. Corporations are not people. We should not treat corporations as people and corporations should not have a say in our government. So we're gonna, we're gonna fix that. In addition, we're also wanting to match the strictest individual limits in the country, which is $170 for state legislative races from Montana and $500 for gubernatorial races from Alaska to ensure that uh, the 1% and the ultra-wealthy like Knight cannot just buy elections here in Oregon, that Oregon works for working-class people. And for our listeners that might not know, you're referencing Phil Knight, who is the owner CEO of Nike. The other things that you mentioned is defending unions and housing affordability. You want to speak a little bit more on what those policies would look like? Yeah, so housing affordability and housing justice issues are really important to me. I'm a tenant. Uh, I've been a tenant my whole adult life. I've moved every single year of my adult life because of rising rents. Um, I've never lived in the same place for more than one lease. Um, and I'm a board member for Portland Tenants United, which is the largest tenants union here in Portland. Um, and we have a lot of work to do on housing justice here in Oregon. We have a major housing crisis here in Oregon. But I think the housing crisis is often mischaracterized as one that 
um, requires uh, new construction and new development, which isn't terrible, but that's the, that's the solution that works best for the, the 1% and the corporate class is building new, new developments with public money that then gets transferred into private hands to build new affordable housing. I'm doing air quotes around affordable. And that's, that's, what, that's what corporations and development lobby is, is constantly lobbying for. But we don't have a housing supply issue. There are three times as many vacant apartments in Multnomah County here in Portland as there are houseless people. So this isn't an issue of supply. This isn't an issue of, of housing. This is an issue of wealth inequality. This is an issue of income inequality. Okay. So the issue is that those, those properties are sitting vacant as investor properties to just drive up, artificially drive up the value of those properties to increase the portfolio of the 1%. So we need to address um, income inequality and we need to make it difficult for landlords to just keep lots vacant. And I talked about the Airbnb lobbyists. They're lobbying in direct contradiction to our class interests because they're in favor of having these apartments sitting vacant so that they can be rented out as Airbnb properties. Because uh, it's more profitable to, to have your apartment rented out as Airbnb than to put a tenant in it. So we need to address that. The most subtle way, the, the, the starting point for that would be a vacancy tax to ensure that it's more expensive to keep an apartment vacant than it is to fill it with a tenant. But also things like lifting the statewide preemption on rent control so that cities can pass stricter rent control. I've been around the state. I've talked to some mayors. Biff Traver, the mayor of Corvallis, is on the record supporting rent control in Corvallis and his city. And he, and he has the votes on the city council, I, I believe, to do that, if only the state preemption wasn't there. Uh, Mark Gamba, the mayor of Milwaukee, who is running against Kurt Schrader for Congress, by the way, go support him. But as mayor of Milwaukee, he's been on the record supporting rent control in his city. But these these progressive mayors, they, they can't meet the needs of their cities. They can't meet the needs of their constituents who are suffering from the housing crisis because the state is preempting them from doing so. I don't think the state should be working for, for the housing industry. I think the state should be working for the development industry or for Airbnb. The state should be working for the people who are suffering from this housing crisis. So we need to lift the preemption. And then we also need to lower the cap that was set earlier. 7% plus CPI is not rent control. Uh, it's anti-price gouging, which is good. You know, I was in favor of the bill. I lobbied in favor of it. But we need to, we need to strengthen it. It's a half measure. It's not a solution. So next is defending our unions. So that goes back to the first vote. Um, you know, the Democratic Party of Oregon has clearly shown loud and clear that they have turned their backs on, on unions and on the union movement and on working class people in this state. That's unacceptable to me. Uh, like I said before, the Democratic Party needs to be the party of the working class. If the Democratic Party isn't going to fight for teachers and nurses, then no one else will. And that's unacceptable. We cannot leave these workers behind. So we need to make the Democratic Party the party of, of unions, the party of working class again. And the purse vote was just absolutely shameful. To be cutting the, the, cutting the public pensions of, of teachers and nurses is in, in Oregon, in, in a state that isn't struggling economically. We're not economically struggling. To be cutting the, the pensions of some of our most valuable public servants is unacceptable. That's, that's a character of a failed state. But Oregon isn't a failed state. Oregon is working exactly as intended and it's functioning just fine for the 1% and for corporations. So we need to take back our democracy and, and turn it back into a democracy that works for working people and works for the regular everyday workers of the state. And that means building a Democratic Party of Oregon that is there for unions and is there to support the union movement. And it's not going to compromise with corporate lobbyists when it comes to workers' rights.
I'm curious about the prospects of winning the seat that you're running for and then what that configuration will look like for you. So we already talked about the supermajority Democrat controlled legislature, that they're making lots of concessions and are pretty much in the center on a lot of the political topics. And your platform is very ambitious. It's great. It's the things that we need. But you're going to be one person in this house. Like how many friends and how many foes will you have? And how are you going to navigate that situation to actually make progress on some of these platforms that you want to make progress on? I'll have a few friends. I don't try to make any illusions that I'm going to get in there and I'm going to automatically be the the leader on some of these issues that people have already been working on for a long time in the legislature. Diego Hernandez in the House is... Now that Rob Nose took a hard right turn, probably the lone progressive in the House, he was the strongest opponent to the um, purse cuts in the House. Uh, he came out very strongly, put out a very strong statement saying that he worked for the people of his district, for his constituents, and not for Tina Kotek, not for the corporate lobbyists that, that control the purse strings in, in Oregon. So he is absolutely um, an ally on special union issues. Some of the stuff I talk about around police age reform and dismantling the, the militarized police state in Oregon, um, Senator Lou Frederick has already been working on that for a long time. So there, there are people who are doing work. Um, Senator um, Kathleen Taylor has been working on sex worker amnesty. She did the sex worker amnesty bill, and she's in favor of sex work legalization, which is different to what I call for, which is sex work decriminalization. But there is some room to work there. Um, you know, she has good good intentions for sure. So there are definitely people who are already leading on a lot of these issues in the legislature. The disconnect is around some of the big ones, like the Oregon Green New Deal. So the Oregon Green New Deal shouldn't be a partisan issue. This is something that is needed. Or, or we're not going to have a planet to live on. Those are the stakes. So it's not a question of whether or not we should do it. It's a question of we absolutely have to do it. If the Oregon legislature isn't going to stand up and fight for our planet, then we need to start replacing them with people who will. That's really what, what it boils down to is basically a question of where does our power come from? To do a little pivot, a little bit of a sidebar here, a theory of where does a politician's power come from? Because every politician needs to be empowered in some way to get bills passed, to get elected. And uh, the conventional model in Oregon is that your power comes from above, that you be a PCP, precinct committee person, in the Democratic Party of Oregon for a few years or a decade or two, and you wait your turn, and then you run for the state legislature, and you probably run unopposed, or maybe you're appointed and you don't get elected at all. There's a lot of state legislators that get appointed and then never run, never run opposed and have long careers never running an opposed election. And then you take corporate money and you vote how you're told, and then you retire. The model there is where the power comes from above. It comes from Tina Kotek. It comes from the leadership. It comes from your corporate donors. Our model is our power comes from below. I have no illusions that my, my role after I'm elected is anything but temporary. You know, I have no illusions that someday I, I won't be in the state legislature. I'm just there as a temporary servant to serve the will of my constituents. And how I do that is uh, through being empowered by those constituents. Um, and that is through the door-knocking power of the over 300 volunteers that we have already that's volunteered to knock on doors for my campaign. And it's through the people power that are funding my campaign with no corporate donations accepted. I will serve at the pleasure of the, the working class people of my district and not anyone else. So with that in mind, that's the same type of power we're going to leverage to get bills passed once we're in session. So the, the state legislators and you know, the senators and the, the representatives who oppose the Oregon Green New Deal, 
who are on the right-wing corporate side of the party, their constituents live on this planet too. They still need to breathe clean air. Their constituents still need roofs over their head. There's, they have tenants in their districts. Their constituents still need healthcare and their constituents still have kids that need an education. And the Oregon Green New Deal and other progressive policies like that, I believe are popular in those districts. Once we show that Rob knows the House majority whip, someone who's in Democratic Party leadership, who has near unlimited corporate money, who's going to outspend us 10, 20, maybe even 30 to one. Once we show that, that he can be defeated, then that shows that no one is safe. So that so what we're going to do is when Betsy Johnson, the senator who's widely considered the most conservative uh, Democrat in, in the Senate, when, when she comes out and opposes the Oregon Green New Deal, we're going to go to her district and we're going to talk to her constituents and we're going to hold rallies. We're going to turn out her constituents to rallies at, at her office or in, and in her district as well. And we're going to mobilize the working class people in her district to pressure her to either support their interests, support the interests of working class people, or, or get out of the way because someone else will. So that's exactly the power we're going to leverage to get things done. Thinking about Rob Nose again and how you mentioned that he had a pretty progressive track record for a while, but then turned hard right. And there's a lot of corporate influence that created that transition for him. How are you going to remain incorruptible as an elected political official? First of all, I don't want I don't want my constituents to just take my word for it. That's part of the problem that got us where we are today. I don't think that constituents should ever trust their elected representatives or their politicians. I, I, I always want my constituents to hold me accountable. So with that in mind, I want to make it as easy and simple as possible for my constituents to hold me accountable. So first off, not taking corporate money is not just a statement of values, but it's also a, a material impact on how I will continue to get reelected if I, if I continue to run and I still want to help advancing the interests of working class people in the legislature, I need to get reelected. And if I'm not working in the interest of the working class people in my district, then I won't even be able to afford to campaign. And um, in Oregon, you, you definitely need money to campaign. So and with that in mind, only having funding from regular everyday people, my average donation is $25. Regular people, my most, most common profession of my donors by plurality is teachers in Portland public schools. These are the people that I, I'm, I'm running to represent. Then that can be withdrawn at, at, at an instant. Um, and then, then I have no power left and I have no way to get reelected. I have no way to pass bills because I don't have my power from above. It doesn't come from Gina Kotek or corporate interests. In addition to that, my, the, the way that I'm going to win this election is with people power. And the way I'm going to win this election is with the over 300 volunteers that are going to go out and knock doors for me. You know, I'm going to get outspent by our opponent, like I said, by a large, large margin. There was a state house race in Oregon last year where a Democrat raised over a million dollars. So it's possible. We don't necessarily expect it, but it's possible that our opponent can raise and spend a million dollars in this race. My budget for this whole campaign is $20,000. So we're going to have spent by a huge margin. And the only way you can compete with that kind of money, just from a tactical campaigning perspective, is by talking to every single voter. Because our opponent's going to be able to say whatever he wants about me, whatever he wants about our campaign, and we're not going to be able to compete with that in conventional media spaces. So he'll be able to do conventional advertising, he'll be able to do mailers, and he'll be able to, to flex his, his money power in a way that we can't even contest. The way that we can contest that is talking to every single voter, going to every single door, and, and the Oregon House State House District is small enough that I myself can do that. You know, I'm planning on my, myself talking to every single voter and knocking on every single door in this district. Our win number is, is just over 7,000. So that's very, it's very doable in eight months of our campaign for me to talk to 15, 16,000 voters. And with that in mind, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm elected in, in the future, I'm not working in the interests of, of the working class people in my district, 
then all of a sudden I won't have anyone to knock doors for me. Then, then all of a sudden the corporate power can absolutely crush, crush our campaign because I'm sure after I'm elected, I'll have right-wing primary challengers every year. You know, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez already has a, a right-wing primary challenger over there in New York. Um, so I have no doubt that there wouldn't be a target on my back um, the, the whole time. Um, and I need the support of working class people um, to, to keep me elected. And if I'm not doing the job, then, then I shouldn't be reelected. I, sh- I shouldn't continue to serve because I'm okay with that. You know, that's exactly this type of structure that I want to put in place. Well, I want to shift a little bit and just ask more about some trends on the national stage and hear your thoughts and opinions about them. Because you're running on this democratic socialist ticket and this phenomenon of open socialist, open communist, open democratic socialist running for political office seems to really be on the uptick. Uh, You already mentioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but we also saw in Chicago five open socialists elected to city government there. We have Bernie Sanders running for president, calls himself a democratic socialist. What do you think the prospects are for having a bottom-up political revolution in this country? And are we seeing kind of the beginnings of that? Yeah, I think we are. I think it's happening. Um, I don't think the prospects are something that's going to maybe happen in the future. I think it's happening right now. And it's already been happening for a number of years. Capitalism is in crisis. You know, capitalism is not sustainable. And the everyday working class people in this country and around the world are waking up to that fact. And and we're organizing and we're banding together and we're, we're taking actions to do something about it. And we've recognized that unlimited economic growth is not sustainable on a planet with limited resources. That capitalism has has driven us to the edge of this cliff, to the edge of this climate crisis cliff that we're currently standing on and about to fall over the brink. And the only way to stop it is by building a better world and by building a better world that works for people and puts people and planet over corporate profit. And that's a that's a monumental task. That's a that's a huge huge monumental task. And it can sometimes seem impossible from our perspective as working class people. But from the perspective of a peasant in medieval Italy back in, you know, 900 AD, the prospect of overcoming feudalism probably seemed like a monumental task that couldn't ever be, be overcome. But feudalism doesn't exist anymore, you know, um, and we did it uh, and we, we overcame that. And just as, as, you know, feudalism turned into capitalism, capitalism can turn into socialism. And we do that through class struggle. And class struggle oh, is something that we can do by, by organizing together to, to recognize that working class interests are universal among working people. The interest of a nurse here in Oregon is directly aligned with the interest of a truck driver in South Carolina. And we can work together and build a movement that, that works for, for all of us and, and not just corporations. So we're going to do that from the bottom up, from school boards to Bernie Sanders running for president. We are, we're building a movement that's changing the politics of this country. Uh, and we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop until uh, we've, we've achieved justice and we've achieved a planet that is sustainable and that works for everybody. Well, in your campaign for District 42, the House of Representatives are there any final things you want potential voters to know about you, to understand about why you're running and what you plan to implement as a politically elected leader? I just want to keep on harping on the fact that this is a very unique campaign here in Oregon. For so long, um, a lot of people just ignore state politics, that the state legislature um, doesn't get a lot of attention. And in that absence of attention, uh, the corporate wing of the Democratic Party has been able to operate with impunity. And we're, we're absolutely shaking that up. 
I just encourage voters to, to pay attention to down-ballot races, not just the presidential campaigns, but, but also right here in your own backyard and in your community, because for too long, the corporate establishment has been able to reign supreme over Oregon state politics. And the results of that have been devastating here in Oregon. Um, and we, we absolutely have to, to, to seize on the opportunity that we have at this moment in this time to, to take our, our state government back and turn it into a, a true democracy that really works for everyday working people. How can listeners that are hearing this episode support you and participate in your political election? We're 100% people powered um, and we don't take corporate money. Um, you know, I'm, it's really important to me that my constituent, my only constituent is the working class people of the state. But that means we do have to raise money from working class people. So if you'd like to donate to our campaign, you can do so at page2020.com. That's P-A-I-G-E. 2020.com and you know no donation is too small like i said my average donation is 25 dollars. so uh, we greatly greatly appreciate all the help you can contribute if you're uh, an everyday working class person um you're exactly the type of person that we're, we're trying to fight for so we'd greatly appreciate your support um, in addition to that if you'd like to volunteer you can do so at page2020.com or just learn more you can find us at page2020.com or follow us on facebook or twitter and uh, thank you so much for having me and thank you to the listener for listening i'm i'm really grateful to be here on this show oh, well thank you again and we uh, look forward to having conversations with you in the future and good luck in the campaign trail thanks